0: Good morning, and let me just reiterate what a special day yesterday was, um, being with the family of God. I mentioned a couple of people that I find that day maybe to be the most refreshing of anything we do together. Just being family, I think it cannot be uh, re-emphasized enough in today's spirituality that the church is more than an event, it is a family of God. It is a people who come together in covenant, and and just somehow that day yesterday embodies that. So thank you all. It looks beautiful and um, it's great to be in this wonderful season. Uh, of course, we're celebrating the advent of Christmas, and as you know, we are now into the season. And it also, of course, begs the question, well, what is Christmas? I mean, what is the meaning of Christmas? Now, I know that you're waiting for a cliché answer, but but at least let me give you a historian's answer. From a historian's perspective, as exposed by when we even celebrate Christmas. You know, of course, that, that the 25th of December isn't the birthday of Jesus Christ. Most think it was somewhere in July, actually. But, but it just has nothing to do with the actual birth date. So what is it? Well, in short, if you were a historian again, you would describe it as the Christianization of winter solstice, where, which predates Christianity by thousands of years, even. Uh, an event that was, was practiced by all nation-states who would all have their patron deity, and that harkens back all the way to the days of Moses and before. Uh, and so what is happening here? Uh, this idea of the Christianization of solstice. To be sure, they are both virtuous and virtues and vices to this whole endeavor and scheme. Virtue insofar as early Christians wanted to make Christians, of their fellow citizens, such as to leverage the celebrations in order to give witness to the true God and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, For the sake of witness, Christianize what was otherwise a pagan holiday. Oh, but the vice. The vice, insofar as various vestiges of pagan practices and worldviews were syncretized then with Christianity, such as to beg the question as to whether paganism was being Christianized or Christianity was being paganized by this whole thing. Now, this is a debate that continues to this day, or at least it should. At the very least, we should be aware, however much we enjoy and love this season, we should be aware of what's going on here, really. The debate, though, was then, and it is now, and we're You know, the two options, of course, were abstain from Christianizing solstice, to preserve the true and unadulterated Christianity from the vice of paganizing Christianity, or to participate in Christianizing the solstice event in order to give witness to Christ. Almost everybody agrees we need a solstice event, though. (laughs) It's just that kind of thing we need about this time of year. Okay, so what does that have to do with today? Well... Albeit while suffering an easy tension of conscience on either side, and I would pray that in some ways that's probably where we should be, we find ourselves participating today in the Christianization of solstice, that is, in far as to speak into the paganization of Christianity. But isn't it strange that we find this season of particular import to speak into the paganization of Christianity? Because it could certainly be argued from a theological point of view that uh, there's probably no season of the year, there's nothing I can think of in our culture uh, where there is more paganism uh, introduced into Christian faith and practice. Now I won't go through the history of Christmas, there's a lecture I've given here about every year and I don't think we have it planned this year, but but it's a fun and, and, and hilarious almost uh, kind of a history of of the sort of things that we do and some of these uh, traditions that we do and how they've come to us, even if you think of Santa Claus himself. But here's the thing. If you were an ancient who, were do- who was doing this, they wanted to focus, of course, on witness. And one of the means that they used was the o-antiphone. antiphon, is, these seven prayers derived from the two Greek words opposite... Anti-anphon, is voice, and antiphon is an ancient monastic chant or prayer sung by alternating verses between a cantor and a congregation. But I'm going to take upon ourselves the, the figurative use of antiphon, this very tension of vice and virtue, this, this back and forth interaction, and how especially that will show up in the o-antiphon that we do today which particularly relates to wisdom. Now keep in mind that probably the, the focal point of the o-antiphon is the o. That is, in grammatical terms, the, the evocative particle. What that means is it's, it's this attempt, at least, to make the prayer a direct address to the subject, in this case, the various messianic images that can be iced. Are located throughout the Old Testament. Today, that image is O Wisdom, which wants to locate our messianic desire for that wisdom that is ultimately and lastingly fulfilled in Christ. The personification of wisdom, O Wisdom. Now listen to this antiphon with that in view. O Wisdom, coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, incarnation, reaching from one end to the other in the midst of us, mightily and sweetly ordering all things, bringing salvation, come and teach us the way of prudence received by faith. It's all there. The gospel story. It's Believed to be inspired by Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 11 verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And so we are once encouraged by this prayer to consider the true nature of of this divine wisdom celebrated in the coming of Christ. What is this divine wisdom? What is its nature? What are we to expect about this wisdom in relationship to our living in the world? These are the subject matters that will be revealed in our passages today in Romans. I mean, in uh, Proverbs 30 and in 1 Corinthians 1, and I'll be referring to them as they bring commentary one to another. But it's definitely an interesting exercise that cannot be exhausted in the remaining 30 minutes of this sermon. And so I will highlight uh, some of the more important aspects of this thing, but here's where it's going to take us, right back to that tension, the tension of whether or not we are participating in the paganization of Christianity or in the Christianization of paganism. And of course, our goal would be the latter. With that in mind, let's pray. So, Father, we need your wisdom. But we need your wisdom in the full sense that it is used in Scripture to be the very power of God that works on our hearts. We need a wisdom that's effectual. And we know that we cannot conjure that up. It is only by your Spirit. So come, Lord Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, into this room into these lives, our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me give you um, a a very brief, redemptive historical survey of why the Antiphon would feel comfortable biblically personifying wisdom to the person of Christ. They just didn't make this up. This isn't just a figurative, poetic device. Rather, what we discern is that this is a very, very, deeply rooted concept of wisdom throughout the Scripture. So we begin, for instance, just as a summary, and then we'll go back, but in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, you need to understand Logos here is is a word that is also translated wisdom, even though there are other words for it as well. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Now, that's not personifying word, is it? But it's directly related to God's self-revelation of himself. So it is the revelation of God, and it's was God. Now, the moment you say that, you are personifying wisdom in the most mystical sense that I can say it. There is a sense in which when wisdom is spoken of, whether in the Proverbs, whether in Deuteronomy, whether in throughout the redemptive history, that you'll get this over and over again, that that wisdom is more than, say, a wise saying or a teaching. Wisdom is power. Wisdom is creative. Wisdom is salvific. This wisdom, then, the word was God. And then notice how it will conclude, this Whole introduction of the coming of Christ who was born this word not of blood not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God that's how we receive it something happens to us and then it goes on John 1 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory is the only begotten of father full of grace and truth Wisdom, first revealed in this word being more than a teaching again, but a power, the very power that shows itself in creation itself. Genesis 1, verse 2, you'll remember. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters, that is, in the midst of the cosmos that is to be created. And then, and God said, the very next lines, and God said. And, of course, we read the story of creation, and God said. Over and over, from Moses in Deuteronomy all the way to John in chapter 1, this, and God said, is translated into the word of God, the wisdom of God said. Chapter 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the midst of them in the garden, in the ruach, the spirit of the day. There it is, the word that came into the presence, the incarnational word in a certain sense, into the very presence of Adam and Eve after they had sinned and spoke again to them. That's the association. That there is, if you've never thought about it before, in your holy scripture scripture, Just the very fact that the words are in the words of humanity. There is an incarnational aspect to God. The the, the self-sufficient God, think about this, revealing himself in word is an incarnational kind of movement. I don't mean in the flesh necessarily, but through the flesh of the voice of the people comes God to us. And it's attributed great power. Deuteronomy picks up this theme. And I want you to notice some of the language, because it's language that shows up in Proverbs again as well in, in our passage in 1 Corinthians. For this commandment which I command to you today, he's talking about the covenant of God being brought to the people, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. In other words, it's not away. It's not distant. Rather, here's this theme again. The word that God has given to us in the covenant is near. He says it this way. Who will ascend? Listen to that quote. Who will ascend into the heaven for us and bring it back down to us that we may hear and be empowered to do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us. And bring to us that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Isn't that amazing? This mystery: God who has ascended is now descended in the midst of us. More than a than a scripted teaching on a rock, but now the power that converts, a power that recreates. We see this over and over. The Word was, in fact, God's presence. Therefore, the Proverbs teaches that curses and blessings are contingent upon our relationship to God's Word, as synonymous with our relationship to God himself. Proverbs 13, "...he who despises the Word will be destroyed." But he who fears a commandment will reward it. Now when you think of a word in the modernistic sense, you're thinking of a teaching, you're thinking of a script, and, and it's an actually encouraged, uh, and, and if you're a scholar particularly, a historian especially, that you're an unencumbered self. You're someone who is not in any way subjectively a part of what you're reading, that you might be objective, that you might interpret history or philosophy or even theology with this kind of objective, removed kind of being. That is not the concept of word in the Hebrew Scriptures nor in the Christian Scriptures. How we respond and react to the word is how we react to God. They are synonymous. Proverbs 16, he who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, that's called a Uh, parallel, uh, you know, parallelism. And, 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 And here it's the word, how you treat the word is how you treat and trust in the Lord God, for happy is he. The two then, word, Lord, used interchangeably. Now we go fast forward to John 3. And listen again how John, picking up from his introduction that I've already read to you in chapter 1, describes Christ and he's quoting Deuteronomy and as you'll see Proverbs 30 and many other scriptures that use this illustration no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven that is the son of man who is in heaven notice how that picture is imaged in the baptism of Christ according to Luke And then fast forward to to Romans and Paul describing this same concept of this word that becomes flesh from heaven to earth. He says, do not say to your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Quoting Deuteronomy that we've already listened to. The word is near you. The word is in your mouth, the word is in your heart. And then he goes on to describe how it is that the word, that which the scripture says will will never be put to shame, for whoever believes on him will never be put to shame. And he goes on to describe how it is that we're to confess with our mouths that which the word has produced in our hearts. The power of God unto salvation. This wisdom of God. And so let's summarize this first point I'm making. That when the antiphon describes, O oh, wisdom, with the vocative particle, it is, in a redemptive historical manner, synonymous with, O oh, Jesus Christ. And therefore the prayer, Come, this wisdom unto salvation, this true and ultimate and eternal wisdom. We are seeing wisdom personified even as we discern that the true test of true wisdom from false wisdom is beginning to emerge. True wisdom is from God. In the words of our antiphon, the most high. True wisdom does it become uh, does it becomes incarnate into our lives. In the words of our antiphon reaching from one end God to the other us. It does bring about human flourishing in the ultimate and everlasting sense. In the words of the Antiphon, mightily and sweetly ordering all things. And is accessible to us, that is to say, coming to us to teach us the way of prudence or wisdom. That being, I believe, here, we receive it by faith. Isn't that powerful? Probably originating in around the 6th century A.C., This ancient canticle being utilized to speak in to what was around them still the prevalence of paganism. And thus the monastic order that went somewhat underground in order to do it. All of this then raises four questions about the nature of divine wisdom. Especially as then related to us today under the new covenant. And so briefly, here they are, the four questions. Question number one. Well, then how does, you're asking, this divine wisdom unto salvation relate to human wisdom in this world? Now we're back into that tension. The Christianization of paganism or the paganization of Christianity. How does this divine wisdom unto salvation relate to the human wisdom of this world? Answer, according to our text, They are presented as polar opposites. You just can't avoid that reality. They are presented as polar opposites in the end. There is this antithetical relationship. Notice in our passage in 1 Corinthians 1, four times the word foolishness is used, which gets your attention if you're a Bible exegete. He's obviously passionate about this. He wants to make a point, right? So here we go. Four times. The first time, it's in the context of divine wisdom that makes human wisdom a fool. That makes it foolish. It says, but to us who are being saved, this wisdom is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, quote, foolish the wisdom of the world? This has a great history. Isaiah 44 says it this way, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of the diviners, who turns wise men, that is of the world, back to, and makes their knowledge foolish. Isaiah 29, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonder. All of these are messianic, by the way, pointing to Christ and what we're to expect when he comes. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Isaiah 19, where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. And on it goes. This is really significant. We're beginning to get a picture that we just can't, how do I say it, um, syncretize these two wisdoms. That these two wisdoms are just antithetical at the core. And it makes the question, begs the question, why do we flirt with it so much? Why is it our campaign so often to make a point of contact with the wisdom of the world as if to make that point of contact, we will find a way to be a witness with the world? Perhaps it's the resident alien rather than the happy alien, if you will, the tensionless alien or the syncretizing alien, to be, you know, Greek, Christ came, you remember, and says, be thee not of the world, even if we're in the world. You see, it's already begun to raise this tension, and as Christians, what does that mean? As a seeker thinking, in your life right now, I'm looking for wisdom in my life. My life is not together. I'm looking for wisdom. Well, maybe, just maybe, there's a wisdom that, honestly is not of this world but now in Jesus Christ is in this world and that is the power that you're looking for. The passage goes on. That was the first use, or one use. The second two uses in this context, just to make the point on the other side, divine wisdom is foolish to the world. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it goes on, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the foolishness, that is the foolishness according to the world, that we preach to save those who believe. What's your expectation about this wisdom? What do we see personified in Christ? Was he the wisdom of the world? Did he come as the world would have expected in their worldly conception of the coming of the kingdom of God? Did he come with great power politically? Did he come with great economic power? Did he come with great charisma and popularity? Eh, Not in the end. Did he teach things like, You will know me by my popular success? Or did he say things, weird things like, The road is narrow and the road is straight that leads to heaven? It's amazing. Joggles your brain a little bit. What are we expecting? What's this relationship? And the final use of divine wisdom with respect to this foolish language, divine wisdom is considered foolish to the world, and it's summarized this way, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now it's interesting as we turn to the Proverbs and the way the Proverbs deals with this same subject, which is why I chose these two. It's kind of a mirror teaching of the same thing. For the Proverbs will say this. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. What does he mean? He says it this way. Surely I am too stupid or foolish. Just being a man. Man qua man. Not gender man, of course. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Somebody were really hoping for that one, I bet. No, you know. But really, think about it. You know, it's men and women along, all. Oh. He's, he's confessing. I'm weary, I'm tired. My wisdom is not working. Have you felt that way? It just doesn't work. The American dream, it's, it's not happening, man. It's just not happening. What is it? What is this expectation for what flourishing would look like? What must you have? must must you do? Must you have this sort of income? Must you have this sort of popularity? Must you have this sort of prestige? Must you have this sort of... What what is it going to take? Well, this is the proverb that tells you where that's going in his confession. I'm weary. I'm exhausted. I've said this so many times uh, over the years... I don't know if I've said it to this generation of CPCers, but a very significant moment in my personal life as a Christian, really early on, was was a testimony. And he entitled his testimony, The Shortcut. I grew up in Atlanta, in the Buckhead region, and this man was renowned. He was an incredibly successful guy. He had it all. I mean, he, you know, there's three distinguished country clubs, and the really, you know, got it people were a member of all three. He was one of the great uh, builders in the Atlanta region, wealthy off the Guaizu. He was healthy. He had vacation houses. I mean, this guy had achieved the American dream like nothing you can imagine. And he sat there and he confessed to us in very great detail how he was brought to a place where he tried to commit suicide. And what he said was, what do you do when everything you set out to accomplish, you accomplish, and you're still not happy? I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out, is what he said. Surely I am foolish in the wisdom of man. And trusting in the wisdom of man, I have not the understanding of a man as a man. I have not learned true wisdom. That leads us to question two. There is a foolishness, question one, that that is going to put the foolishness of this expose the foolishness of this world. There's a foolishness number two wherein divine wisdom will be considered fools, foolish to those who have the wisdom of the world and are achieving it until they grow to their end. And then there's a foolishness of the world that is exposed as wiser in the end for, at, than the wisdom of a man. Question two, then, where can this divine wisdom be found? Answer, well, again, it's not among the wisdom that is most often esteemed in this world. Verse 26 of our passage, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Too quickly we hear that and we hear Paul saying something like, well, you know, God doesn't like the rich people. God doesn't like the power people. That's not what this passage is saying at all. What he's saying is, have you noticed everyone sitting out in the room that there is nothing sociologically studyable that warrants... That God is a respecter of persons? That to be rich makes you wiser, or to be poor makes you unwiser? Have you discerned that the coming of the kingdom of God, that human flourishing doesn't respect the wisdom of this world? That is to say that that there's nothing about you, says Paul, speaking to the Corinth congregation, that would warrant anyone finding their hope and their confidence in the wisdom of the world. At best, he's going to go on say, for God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak according to the world's wisdom to shame the strong, even things that are not to bring to things that are. At best, therefore, there is no correlation between those who have divine wisdom and those who have earthly wisdom. And I wonder, why do we expect that? Why does the church want to parade the successful people all the time to be the witness? As if there's a correlation. There isn't. It really speaks to something here. Or at worst, there is a correlation between those who don't have divine wisdom and those who have earthly wisdom. That's scary. For many of us have made a living and our education of studying and learning the wisdom of this world. Again, wisdom that can be common grace, but it's the wisdom of this world that is predicated upon the human perspective that is at view here. Rather, it is wisdom that will appear to the world impractical, and we're told lowly and despised. What will seem to be weakness Stupid, not practical. That one, Ooh, that hurt. Not practical. I mean, you do know that probably most people think that you're being very impractical right now, right? That there's work that could be done, there's other things you could be done, there's rest that could be done. I mean, you're sitting in a room totally impractical to most of your life. At least it will be said or thought. And maybe we think that way too. We struggle with that. Corinthians calls this wisdom the power of God. Proverbs says, nor have I knowledge of the Most High. He ends his confession with, oh, no, I've learned. What my confession is saying is I don't have wisdom from God. I have relied on another kind of wisdom. Notice then carefully how Proverbs 30 defines the Holy One. This is really amazing. I, I, I just love for you to love the scripture. So just let me show you this. This is incredible. When he, spot, when he defines this, I don't have the knowledge of the Holy One, what would he do? He'll ask four rhetorical questions. You'll recognize them. Who has ascended up into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the spirit? There it is again. Wind. Remember Genesis? Remember Luke? Who has bound the waters into a body of water? Who has established all the ends of the earth? That's where the wisdom of God is found. Directing us to where wisdom can be in fact discovered, he says this, and you just can't believe this is in Proverbs. You kind of go, whoa. He says, so what is his name? No. He says, what is his son? Proverbs 30, picked up by 1 Corinthians. I mean, think about the ministry of Christ. Who controls the wind throughout the Gospels? Jesus Christ. Who else is the creator and sustainer of the world that can cause the storms to still? Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 24, 1 Corinthians, Christ, the power of God, that is. The wisdom of God. Let me say that again. Christ, the power of God, chi in the Greek. Chi can be and, a lot of other things. Here, I think it's best translated. Christ, the power of God, that is the wisdom of God. Tying into this incredible, amazing theological history. There's a lot going on in your Bible. I hope you know that. And therefore, he says, we preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. That is to say, what will this wisdom look like? He goes on to describe it as lowly. That is lowly. I want you to think about that. What did Christ come to do? I don't know, man, but if he came to make the world a better place, he's failing. I said it. I mean, if that's really what this is, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Hallelujah, man, look around. It's great out there, isn't it? I'm being a little cynical, trying to get your attention. There's some good things. But honestly, if you've read your Bible and you see these extraordinary expectations... For what would happen when the Messiah would come? No more tears, no more war. We sang it today in a song. I'm so fearful that the congregation will confuse something here. For he came not with power. He came not with wealth. He came not with those things in view. He came despised and forgotten and lowly what the world would laugh at and mock at the end. Why? Well, the key is in your text. A stumbling block, the cross, the stumbling block. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, it became a stumbling block to discerning the wisdom that was in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they didn't understand that the problem in the world started with themselves that their problem was with God. They needed to be reconciled to God. And to be reconciled to God, God put his son on earth to die, to share the curse, to suffer the curse of humanity, that his justice could be satisfied. I'm saying a lot here. Listen. And in satisfying God's justice, he offered to us God's righteousness revealed in Christ that would give us a standing with God that would now forever change our relationship with God to not forgiven, to not guilty, but forgiven. When Jesus came, oh, Antiphon, oh, the wisdom of God was such as to come incarnate to suffer the curse of the law that we might not have to. This phase, what we celebrate on Christmas, is not a domesticated, cute little Jesus that allows us to feel very, you know, comfortable around him, but a very dirt poor Jesus, not to create an ethical system necessarily, though it's true, but this Jesus who came born under the law so that his purpose was to die and to reconcile the world to God by that death. That is a wisdom that is the most ultimate wisdom of all because if you are wise, if you heard what the Proverbs said, it always begins with the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to recognize that, put it in the negative, that he's your biggest problem. How you are with him is everything in the end, everything. There's no greater wisdom in the world than that wisdom as to how to be reconciled to God and that wisdom that has the power to recreate in you a new heart that would so discern your need that you would beg mercy. We can't lose that first order. It's true, he's going to come again. It's true for those reconciled to God, he's going to restore our self-same body to our self-same spirit in the words of our confession. He's going to restore the self-same earth to itself, the earth now longing still, yearning for creation, yearning for its own salvation, which is to come in the resurrection life. That's coming, Christians, but that's not now now is to share in the suffering of Christ as a witness to Christ's death on the cross that the world would see in you a wisdom not of this world. That a gospel comes in a different kind of power. Now, I ask you in closing, let's go back to this issue. There's a tension, vice or virtue. What part of Christmas you think would share in the vice? That would obscure the wisdom of God? What part of Christmas would celebrate the virtue? And proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about our lifestyle and what's being promised in Christmas? To you, Christian, who's weary, maybe Christmas... Maybe Christianity became the wisdom of the world in the way that you've understood it. And it's made you weary. You had the perfect mantle. (laughs) You have the perfect house. You go to the perfect parties with the people who are perfect people. You hobnob with the right folks. Christmas is a time that really puts all that stuff up in in the surface, doesn't it? And then you leave it and you go didn't work. Look, I'm not quite as Scrooge as you think. I'm all for solstice, by the way. (laughs) Whatever we do. But we've got to think about this. Because it's, it's destroying people. Not just around Christmas, but a kind of Christianity. A kind of Christianity that is syncretized to this worldly wisdom and power that expects something that is not what Christ came to do, He came to reconcile you and your friends to God through his death on a cross. Foolishness, to be sure, to the world, but the power of God unto salvation. How then do we receive this wisdom? Well, the passage makes it clear in Proverbs 30, do not add to this word, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. What is he saying? He's saying what has just been declared the son of the most high as the wisdom of god is sufficient don't add a thing to it oh gosh i just walked right into this this conversation didn't it don't s- syncretize don't paganize christianity depaganize it everywhere we can depaganize it the sufficiency of jesus christ is what's in view here that is to say that we receive it and it goes on to describe it, especially in this passage in Romans, how it is that, that we must take refuge in this wisdom. That is to believe it. That's an ancient way of saying to believe in this wisdom of God. In Corinthians, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast of the Lord. That's another way of saying faith again, that, that we put our confidence in this wisdom. Not in the wisdom of this world. And in Romans it says, that we would confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. For from the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confesses and made into salvation. It's very interesting, but if you understand the context of that, he's saying that what does it mean to become a Christian? Well, there's an individual event, whoever believes. Saving faith means to, to assent to the truth of this wisdom, to receive it, and to rest in it. But There's another aspect to this to confess with your mouth. That is, in the ancient history, it's to join yourself to God's people where the mystery of the wisdom becomes incarnate still. The mystery of the incarnation revealed through the church of Jesus Christ and the life of the family of God that we experience right here working together in this church. I hope that you'll give this some thought. Amen. Perhaps it's not a coincidence after all that one of the things that got early Christians most in trouble was the Lord's Supper. It was considered the most barbaric thing you could imagine in Roman culture, that you'd be eating bodies and drinking blood. It was foolishness. With eyes blinded, the Roman context of that day could not understand what they were remembering but for you, Christian, it has been given to remember. It's been given to remember that there's a